Well, good morning to all of you. Wonderful to see you. Uh, grateful to be here. My uh, three children, three of our five are with me in the service. And then as it goes, when you have five kids, we're on like a rotation. You know, if nothing goes wrong or nobody gets sick for two months, it's like a miracle. So this morning we woke up and our fourth, our little, our little Ruthie, uh, Ruth Joy is her name, uh, was having breathing trouble and just asthma and, and her issues. And so, and then we have a young one, Lydia, we call her Liddy. She is about 16 months old now, and she's in that, you know when you're the fifth kid, you just know you're covered, like you're good, you just truck around, and you're like having fun, so mama is holding the fort down uh, out there, and probably watching the live stream, and just being the hero that she is, I'm so thankful for my wife. We love Prescott, we come to visit here uh, often, it's kind of our secret little retreat spot, we enjoy it. Uh, we will come up because they have a Five Guys in town, which is my favorite place to eat, and a Trader Joe's, which is another really good spot. But last night we had a wonderful experience that was a first in all of our times visiting here. Uh, at the Airbnb we were staying at, I, don't, I think it, my hypothesis is it was a bear because there was too much damage for it to have been raccoons. But uh, we got, I'm sure people driving by and seeing all the trash everywhere just thought, these rookies, you know, they must be new to town. All the locals know you don't leave trash out. Uh, We had everything in bags. It was in the trash receptacle, as we were told by the host, and a black bear had a feast last night outside of our place. And so uh, the the gift of Prescott keeps on giving. We... (laughs) We are enjoying it. That kept the kids up for another hour with a mi- uh, kind of a mid-range of, of fear and tears, but also fascination of what was it, you know, all of that. But thank you for your, your warm and kind hospitality. Thank you for allowing me to come and serve, especially the elders and, and Andrew. Very, very grateful. Uh, and so as we head back down to the Phoenix area today, we'll take with us your warm greetings. And I know the people of Shepherd's House uh, have a great deal of, of love and appreciation for you and your pastor who will come down, I believe, and preach uh, in our pulpit April 7th. And so if you want to beat the heat and actually go to Phoenix when it's worth going, for the Prescott people that never have to leave, you guys have it perfectly up here, April 7th, you can mark your calendar, uh, Andrew will be down to preach the Word for us. Uh, when praying about what to preach, I begin to to just think and meditate on God's truth and on even the timing of year and thought, what better for the end of the year than to look at a passage about being Spirit-filled? I don't know if you're a resolutions person. Uh, I am. I always have a few, a few things that I'd like to just do differently or do better or adjust in the new year. But for all the resolutions that people will make, and no doubt believers can do that, and that's, that's good, We need to always remember that Christians have been given a a sort of supernatural weapon or a secret weapon, if you will, whereas you can make resolutions and make adjustments to your life. The Christian life is not built on the annual calendar. It's an ever-present reality in which the Holy Spirit has taken residence inside of you, and really every day is an opportunity to have a, a resolution, if you will, or to resolve to live in a way that brings honor and glory to Christ. And so, to encourage you, as the year turns over, I wanted to look at a text that will remind us what it means to be Spirit-filled, and that really is the question, are you, and do you live the Spirit-filled life? If you'll turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to be in verses 18 to 21, and I want to look at Paul's words to the church at Ephesus regarding the Holy Spirit and His filling. If you'll read with me, we'll read in Ephesians 5, verses 18 to 21, and then I'll pray one more time and and we'll jump in. Paul writes, "'And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit.'" speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That is God's Word 
to us today. Uh, If you will, just one more time, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I want to pause and ask for uh, Your blessing upon our study. Help me to be a faithful servant to my brothers and my sisters here to preach with clarity, with accuracy, to encourage and exhort them. I pray that as we meditate on these truths about the Holy Spirit, that He will work within our hearts. That for uh, the, the newest Christian to the longest standing Christian in the room, perhaps even someone who has not yet made a clear profession of faith, that all of us would come to an understanding and a renewed mind as it pertains to the Holy Spirit and His filling. We need you every day. I pray that through our study of this text, you would convict us if we've been on cruise control, just sort of going through the motions of our walk with you. And for anyone here who's maybe been confused or just never been sure of what it means to be Spirit-filled and to live a life that is Spirit-filled, that you would bring clarity and joy in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the phrase Spirit-filled gets thrown around a lot. It's, uh, it's kind of a a a pop culture phrase in the church, if you will. There's a lot of Spirit-filled things. They've got Spirit-filled study Bibles. I've seen those before online. Uh, The idea of being Spirit-filled, sometimes synonymous with a feeling. People will go to a a conference or uh, some sort of, you know, meeting or or special revival event, and they'll say, man, I got Spirit-filled, or you need to come to this event with me so you can be Spirit-filled. There's some who would think that being Spirit-filled is speaking in tongues. Like, you're not really Spirit-filled until you speak in tongues. You might be a believer, you might be baptized in the Holy Spirit, but, you know, there's this, this other thing you need to get, or this second blessing, or this extra experience, and when you experience that, well, then you're really Spirit-filled. When I ask you the question, are you Spirit-filled, and do you live the Spirit-filled life, I'm not asking you if you've had one of those experiences. And I'm not suggesting that if you don't know or don't think you're Spirit-filled, that you go chase one of those experiences. The Word of God is so clear on what it means to be Spirit-filled that it quiets all of the noise and all of the confusion, but not only that, it fills you with a great deal of joy and confidence that you every day can live Spirit-filled. Filled. I want to answer two questions today from the Word of God. The first is, what does it mean to be Spirit-filled? And the second is, how can we be Spirit-filled? So, what does it mean to be Spirit-filled, and how can we be Spirit-filled? Question number one, what does it mean to be Spirit-filled? Look at the Word of God with me there in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. Maybe your translation says debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Let me just give you the answer right away off the top. To be Spirit-filled is to be monopolized by Him. And what that would result in is your thoughts, your ambitions, your words, your desires, your actions, and even your emotions are yielded to Him completely. That's what it means to be Spirit-filled. If you want an even shorter definition, you can just write, to be controlled. To be Spirit-filled means to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Why do we know this? Well, Paul here is contrasting, and, and contrasts in the Word of God give us a clue as to what the author is saying and how he's defining things. It's a contrast. He contrasts drunkenness, which is out-of-control behavior. You're under the influence of something else. It's dissipation, it's debauchery with being Spirit-filled. One is the picture of being under the influence that destroys, and another, being under the influence of the Spirit of God, which renews and builds up. The most literal translation here of the verb that he uses when he says, be Spirit-filled or be filled with the Spirit, is a phrase that just means be being kept filled. The way that the Greek structure is for the phrase, you don't need a Greek lesson, but just the idea is it's an ongoing present active experience. You are to be being on and on every day, every minute, every second, Spirit-filled. Keep on being filled. And so, exegetically, the filling of the Spirit is an ongoing, repeated 
process. But also exegetically, there's something that is interesting about the words and the grammar that Paul chooses to use. Uh, The verb he uses is present passive imperative, which basically means present, it's something that should be happening right now, every day, ongoing. It's imperative in that it's a command. You are commanded. I'm commanded. Be Spirit-filled. But it's a passive verb, which is really interesting because a passive verb is something that is done to you. So, what we have here is a command. You need to be Spirit-filled. I need to be Spirit-filled. However, that very command to be Spirit-filled is not something you just go and do because you muster up enough strength and and enough gusto to do it, but no, it's actually done to you. The Holy Spirit acts upon you to fill you, and so we can see there is a part you play, no doubt, you need to be yielded. You can't say as an excuse, well, it's you know, God's work, He's got to do it, so I just do nothing. At the same time, you cannot be Spirit-filled if not for the work of the Spirit upon your life. And when you're filled with the Spirit, what does that look like? Well, for starters, there's a passage in Galatians chapter 5. Perhaps you've heard of the fruit of the Spirit. We uh, talk about these often at our dinner table, again, with five children ages nine and under. Uh, It's not a very fruity house sometimes when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit. There's a lot going on. It can be a challenge. So-and-so took my ball. So-and-so took my blanket. You know, but even as adults, entitlement and, and our selfish ambition take over, and we begin to look at others, and there, there can be this competitive kind of cutthroat attitude that we get, maybe the way that we look at other people, and all of a sudden that the fruit of the Spirit is not very evident. We're not very loving. We're not very peaceful. We're not very joyful. We're not very gentle. We're not very kind. We're not very uh, self-controlled. These are things that the Holy Spirit produces in us, and one of the secrets to being Spirit-filled is in Galatians chapter 5. If you want to turn over there, you certainly can. I want to highlight chapter 5, verse 16. And Galatians is just one book before, and so just a few pages prior to where we are. Galatians 5. Go to verse 16. Paul is explaining to the church throughout Galatia, how to walk by the Spirit, not carry out the deeds of the flesh, and and here's what he says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, capital S, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. He says, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Then he goes on to list the deeds of the flesh, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. It's like just in case he didn't get them all. He just adds, you know, and, and everything else like this. That those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying practice by way of lifestyle. If this is the way you live, friend, you are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. You are not saved. You're not genuinely walking with Christ. But, in contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. I love that little added phrase. It says, though, hey, you can do these as much as you want. Go nuts. No limits. These, do them as often as you can and that you'd like. What's he saying? Well, the key phrase is walk by the Spirit in verse 16. The Greek word walk, peripateo, it means to be preoccupied, busy about, on and on and on. I would use a definition of just being obsessed with or hyper-focused on. 
Obsession, not always a great thing in our lives as human beings because we have a proclivity to idolatry and to get really caught up in things if we're overly obsessed, but in a similar vein as, hey, when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit, there's no law. Do this as much as you want. When it comes to being hyper-focused, walking by the Spirit, there's no limit. You ought to be, and I ought to be, obsessed or hyper-focused on what the Holy Spirit wants me to do and you to do. How should I be living? What would Christ have me do in this situation? And of course, John 16, being the job description of the Holy Spirit that it is, where uh, the Apostle John begins to explain, of course, he's quoting Jesus, that Jesus says in John 16, 14, He of the Holy Spirit, He will glorify who? Me, meaning Christ. That's the Holy Spirit's job. So why do you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit? So you can bring glory to Christ. What brings glory to Christ? Walking by the Holy Spirit. And so that's what it's going to look like. Now the question begins to surface in our own hearts, When I'm wondering if I'm Spirit-filled, I just need to look at the fruit of the Spirit and then say, is that a general pattern in my interactions? Not with just the easy people. I'm with you. I really get along with people I like. Don't you? It's so easy. I find the challenge with being Spirit-filled is when I'm dealing with someone that is really getting under my skin. The flesh is weak in those moments. And the fruit of the Spirit still must be born. But I want to kind of dig a little bit deeper so that we're clear on on being Spirit-filled by understanding not just what it is, but what it's not. First, there is the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Sealing, S-E-A, not C-I-E, or C-E-I, sorry. I, don't, I think it's C-I-E. We need to move on. I still don't know. I'll need to Google that later. <laughs> I before E except after C, but not with sealing. No, it is with sealing. <laughs> but it's not that sealing. It's S-E-A, L-I-N-G. From Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, where Paul is encouraging these believers, even prior to his words about being Spirit-filled, of what it means to be sealed by the Holy Spirit. The church in Ephesus is in the middle of a a, a very vibrant culture. They've got the arts, they've got religion, they've got business, they've got commerce, they've got athletics, all of it going on. And, And when these believers would get saved, it, it wasn't like today where people hold on to a lot of their worldliness and sort of like one foot in the church and one foot out and you sort of just try to play both sides. If you became a Christian, everybody knew it and you were kind of like one of those people. And so these Christians in Ephesus would lose a lot, relationships, maybe jobs, certainly respect. Christians were not highly thought of. So Paul's encouraging them that they're chosen they're loved. They're known. God didn't, didn't save them by accident. He actually had forethought about them. Makes them feel a little more loved or a little more clear on how special they are to God in the middle of a culture that is talking about them in a way that is less than favorable. And he gets to these words about the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And the idea here is that you can't lose genuine salvation. I'm not talking about false conversion, and and you just sort of like Jesus is a cherry on top of your American dream life. He's talking about true conversion. You believe the gospel. You love Christ. And that when you are His, you're not going anywhere. Are you going to struggle? Yes. Could there be prodigal seasons? Yes. Are you going to be perfect every day? No, not a chance. But When you are one of God's children, the Holy Spirit seals you. He marks you. And the word that he uses there describes like like the emperor's seal or like a branding. In other words, spiritually speaking, when you belong to God, the Holy Spirit brands you. You are one of God's children. You're not going anywhere. The idea, of course, clear in the Gospel of John when Jesus is explaining in John chapter 10 that He is more sheep, He's going to bring them, and none of His sheep are going to be snatched out of His hand. He's not going to lose any of His sheep. He's going to keep those who belong to Him. The idea here is a promise 
the Holy Spirit is a pledge to you that your salvation is true and real and that you are saved and will stay saved and He will sanctify you on the way to heaven. This is so helpful for some of you right now. Maybe you're, you're in a, a war against some aspect of, of your sinful nature and you struggle with certain things and you hate it. You don't love it, you hate it. And you wonder, am I really saved? Does God really love me? Or would He really do this or that because I'm in this? And, and just the fact that you care about your sin is evidence that you belong to God. Unbelievers don't care. You know what they only care about? Being caught. Losing some aspect of their reputation. A genuine believer, they, we, we hate our sin. We loathe it. And on those days where you may wonder or doubt, is it real? Am I saved? Is this really working? You need to remember the promise in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, and the promise of Philippians 1, 6, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ, that God is not done with you yet. I wish that you get saved and everything just turns perfect right away. My wife would wish the same thing, but it's not the way it is. It's progressive sanctification day by day as you what? As you walk by the Spirit. That's the sealing. Then there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that's a one-time thing. 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 12 lays out the gifts of the Spirit. And in verses 13 and 14, Paul says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether you were a Jew or Greek, slave or free, we were all made to drink from one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. Every believer, when you get saved, is baptized into the body of Christ. What does that mean or what does that look like? Well, it's something spiritual. You can't see it per se, but when you make a true profession of faith, when Christ has taken over your life, you are baptized into the body of Christ. You are a part. You are a member. That's why, I mean, you guys do the same thing we do. I believe you practice uh, biblical church membership. We have a lot of people in the, the East Valley area that come to our church and they say, so what's this membership thing? What am I signing up for here? And I find myself explaining more often than not just what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. You don't vote with your feet. This isn't like, well, I come and go when I want. It's not consumerism, like when you're a member, you get to tell everyone, you know, what color the carpet's going to be, or you get the extra amenities, like a country club. But being a member is, I'm known, I'm loved, I'm saved, and I'm in covenant with other believers. Why? Because I'm a part of the spiritual body. I don't disconnect myself and say, well, you know, I, I love Jesus, I just hate the church, or I, I love God, I just don't, I don't do people. There's no such thing. There's no model in Scripture. And in this sense, baptism is being baptized into the body of Christ. And our, our water baptism is really that picture that you've been buried with Christ and now you have risen to new life. You've been raised to new life with Christ. And it's the picture of the old you being washed away, gone, and the new you in Christ, saved and a part of His body. And then there's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is also a one-time thing, and I want to make this clear from the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul is reminding a group of very sinful people that they are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that amazing? Can we just pause for a second? If you're not familiar with Corinth, let me just get you up to speed. The, the church in Corinth, I would describe them like Vegas on steroids. They were wild. And Paul calls them saints. You go home today, you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you will see saints. And then you'll see this, or do you not know? And he's exhorting them, he's rebuking them. They're not in his good graces, if you will. But he says to them, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own? They're in sin in a number of ways. And he's trying to remind them, don't you know your body? It's not yours. It belongs to Him. The way you use it should bring honor and glory to Him. Why? Well, because He dwells within you. He made you His temple. And this is a one-time thing. When you're saved, you're sealed, and you are baptized in the body of Christ, and you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, He's not coming and going. He's not, you're not like a rental house. He dips in and dips out. You're not an Airbnb spiritually. The Holy Spirit, when He's in you, He's in you. The indwelling, you are His temple. 
And the church at Corinth, they were very, very bad temples, very sinful temples. They needed to be rebuked, and they were spiritually arrogant beyond. Paul rebukes them, but still says, don't you remember, don't you know, you've been indwelled. You're not your own. You don't belong to you. Those are all one-time experiences that revolve around salvation, whereas the filling of the Spirit is an ongoing, repeated process. Often theologians will say it this way, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a one-time occurrence. The filling of the Holy Spirit is an ongoing occurrence. And it revolves around your sanctification, and that is our spiritual growth, our obedience, our submission, and being under His control in day-to-day life. And so, as Christians, we know we're loved by God, and He's gracious to us when we sin, but we must not be under the delusion that we've ever ceased from needing the filling of the Holy Spirit. Out of everything ever commanded when it comes to the work of the Spirit, you're never commanded to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. You aren't commanded to be sealed by the Holy Spirit. You aren't commanded to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Paul's just reminding them that they actually are as believers, but we are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we can't Uh, do what I would call the idea of cruise control Christianity, where we think because we believed in Christ, we just sort of jump on the train, the preacher gets us to heaven, and and we don't have to have spiritual tune-ups or pause each day to think about the way we're living and the way we're talking. On a personal note, I'm convicted of this pastorally all the time. One of the joys, but also one of the pains of, of pastoring a local church is there's just no hiding who you really are. Pastors are human too. They sin. They don't always get it right. I know we all do wish that they were perfect. It'd be easier, but they're not. And I'm convicted all the time when it comes to being Spirit-filled. How dangerous is the man who stands to preach about sin but has not knelt to confess his own before the Lord? Pastors need to be Spirit-filled. People need to be Spirit-filled. How dangerous is, is the man who lords his authority over others and yet has not yielded himself to the authority of the Spirit of God? And how dangerous, especially in, in perhaps some of our circles where we love doctrine, we love theology, to be uh, as sharp as a scalpel when it comes to doctrine and theology and have all of the truth nailed with precision, and yet not be applying it to your own life. And so if we want to grow and become more like Jesus, we need the filling of the Spirit. I love this old story about D.L. Moody. He was a well-known evangelist, and he was supposed to have a, some large service in England. And there was a meeting of pastors about the, the, the large evangelistic meeting, and a pastor stood up and he protested, you know, why do we need this Mr. Moody? He didn't like that Moody had to be brought in for some evangelistic service. And then he went on, he said, he's uneducated and he's inexperienced. Who does he think he is anyway? Does he think he has a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? A wiser pastor rose and responded, no, but the Holy Spirit sure has a monopoly on Mr. Moody. I just love that picture. It's also a piercing question for you and I. Does the Holy Spirit have a monopoly on your life? Your words, your actions, your private thoughts, but also your finances, your goals, your resolutions, the way that you're planning out the future. See, for the Spirit-filled Christian, all of life is for Christ. All of life unto His glory. There's no compartmentalized Christianity where you place these things before the Lord and then you hold on to these things and it's like His his gift to you is just to you do you with those things. No, for the Spirit-filled Christian, all of life, all of your resources, all of your ambitions, every ounce of your talent, your spiritual gift, all that He's given you, all of it is to be monopolized by Him. And so the question every single day, is what am I doing with what He's given me? That's your time, that is your treasure, that is your talents. 
all of it. It's your temple, even the way that you steward your body, all of it, all for the glory of Christ. And are you yielded to Him? I know you want to be filled, I want to be filled, so let's answer the second question. We know what it means, but how then can we be filled? Well, Paul seems to provide us with both evidence and what can be applied as the means, evidence and means for being Spirit-filled in verses 19 to 21. So the second question we'll answer now, how can you be Spirit-filled? Verse 19, he says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Okay, I want to break down these verses for you. We've got what some will stress in in commentaries and in scholarship to be the evidence, and only the evidence of being Spirit-filled. We've got, though, also what can be the means by which we are Spirit-filled. And I believe that it can be both. And you'll see why. I want to break these down. Number one, we see here we have corporate and personal worship. If you're jotting down notes, corporate and personal worship. Where am I getting that from? Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. You have corporate and personal worship. It means that when we're together with others and singing to each other and to God, we are reflecting the evidence of the Spirit-filled life. But these can also be a means by which we are Spirit-filled. Why? Well, because we're singing about Christ and we're singing the truth. And that truth begins to bear upon our soul and our lowercase s spirit, our inner man, which the Bible talks so often about and Paul does as well, the, the spiritual you begins to be what? Uplifted. Your perspective changes and all of a sudden you are in a different frame of mind. No longer the burdens and cares of this world weighing you down. No longer the distractions dominating your thoughts and opinions and your affections. But no, you're thinking now about Christ. And this is the truth of Colossians 3.16 where Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell within you richly. And when it dwells within you richly, what starts coming out? Singing. Praises to God. And thanksgiving. And that's the pattern. Filling up on God's Word through corporate and personal worship is vital to you being Spirit-filled. It is an evidence, but it's also a means, and I want to prove this to you. You know this to be true, and so do I. People often say to me, you know, I came to church just really drained today and frustrated and discouraged. You know, I've been stuck in a rut, and I, I just have not been feeling it. And then they leave church. Maybe this is you sometimes. Maybe it was you last week. Maybe it'll be you today. And what are we likely to say if that's been us? We get in the car, if we're married, we look at our spouse, if you're alone, you just what do you what do you say? You say, I really needed that. Or we say, that was for me. What happened? Well, what do you think happened? The word of Christ was dwelling richly within you. You were hearing the praises unto God. You started singing praises to God. The Word of God pressed in on your soul. And you came in empty, but you left filled. Why? Because God uses the church as a means of grace to fill you, as a means of grace to encourage you, to exhort you, and to strengthen you as you go out to live as a witness for Christ. The Holy Spirit works through corporate worship. People say the same thing about their week when it's going rough. You ever just having one of those days and all of a sudden you turn on some music, some worship music, and you begin to just sing to God in your car? If you haven't done that, you ought to. But you start feeling different. Now, feelings are, are, are whatever they are, right? They can be flighty. You don't want to go with your feelings. You want to go with the truth. But God does care about our feelings, and there can be these feelings of joy, of renewal, of perspective, of courage, of boldness, of strength. All of a sudden, because you were singing unto God, you got your eyes off your situation and on to Christ, singing 
changes that. You ever just going through a season where you feel a little dry spiritually, and it's because you haven't been spending time in God's Word. And so, what do you do? Well, you renew your, your passion for it, and you resolve to be in the Word more. That's why people have reading plans, and they start in January, and everyone says, we're going to do the reading plan. And that's great. You do the reading plan. Check off the box. That's fine. Get them all. Win a prize if that's what you like to do. I love that. I encourage my kids and our family to do the same thing. But in the end, it's not just to check a box. It's not just to feel good because you made it in the annual reading plan with the church. It's because when you read God's Word and you saturate your life with the Word of God, the Spirit fills you, transforms you, changes you. All of a sudden, you have wisdom. You go, where did that come from? Because you've been filling up your well with the Word of God, and now you have something to pour out. And so, these yes are evidences, but they are also means. And in all of this, don't miss the emphasis here on singing. And not just any singing, but singing as worship unto God. And did you know that that is one of the distinctions of the Christian church, that even in the time of the Reformation, we often talk about uh, sola scriptura or the doctrine of justification by faith and all of these aspects that the Reformers kind of took back and took a stand on. But singing was also one of the great reformations at that time. There was an explosion of preaching, but also singing. In the early church, there was a Roman governor in a letter to the emperor Trajan in AD 112, explaining how the Christians in his province would customarily meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing a hymn to their God. Tertullian, he was the North African church father, he writes about a Christian feast in which each is invited to sing to God in the presence of others from what he knows of Holy Scripture or from his own heart. And then for hundreds of years, the Dark Ages saw the decline of singing in the church. And so much of of what the Roman Catholic Church has become today is the result of that era empty tradition, works-based rituals, and then the Reformation happens, and from there Martin Luther brings back the great practice of hymn singing and hymn writing. And throughout the great revivals that followed, hymns explode out of the church. Charles Wesley writes 6,000 hymns. Fanny Crosby wrote 8,000. Isaac Watts, 750. You have John Newton and Steele, so many others writing hymns. The Spirit-filled church sings. The Spirit-filled church writes music to sing unto God. You think of psalms like David wrote, hymns which are anthems unto God, and spiritual songs which are the songs we sing about God and to one another, all of it based on Scripture. If you've ever been one of those people that wonders, why in the world do we sing? Do we have to sing? Yes. It's what spirit-filled people do. It is both the evidence and the means by which we are filled with the Holy Spirit through the truth. Singing is not the the warm-up to the sermon. It's worship. Number two, a thankful heart. We got corporate and personal worship. You got a thankful heart here as both the evidence of the Spirit-filled life, but also the means. He says, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Gratitude is the mark of the Spirit-filled Christian. Many times we complain, and we get caught up in patterns of complaint and murmuring and seeing everything with a a cynical eye. And look, being uh, critical can be helpful. Critical thinking, it's a good thing we don't want to stop doing. I can think over the last few years where critical thinking would have been helpful with many things that we've seen go down in our country in the education system, in many facets of our world. Critical thinking is good. Uh, Having that critical eye, attention to detail, this is a a good thing. I would even add, it is a godly thing. God is the God of details. He's a God of excellence. He cares how things are. And so, we want to have that critical eye. We want to have critical thinking in our repertoire, but to be a critic or a cynic is not the mark of the Spirit-filled Christian. Thanksgiving is. Gratitude is. And this is the exact opposite, I know, of the flesh. We are, by nature, complainers, criticizers, 
We're forgetters, by the way, too, aren't we? We forget how good God has been, how kind and merciful He has been, how much He's blessed us, that even in the midst of trial, there's always something to thank Him for, because He's good like that. This is a heart of gratitude that begins with God and flows out from that. And, and Scripture is loaded with warnings and commands about thankfulness. Uh, Romans one twenty one speaks about the, the reprobate, the sinner, saying, for even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their reasonings and their senseless hearts were darkened. Paul's explaining how the unrighteous act. And so, if you have a tendency to be a complainer, if you have a tendency to, to be, a, you know, I, Winnie the Pooh is not all that popular nowadays, but you remember Eeyore? Oh, bother. Nothing goes right for me. You know, Eeyore attitude is antithetical to the Spirit-filled life. Paul is warning, this is how the world acts. You think about the encouragement and exhortation he gives to the Philippians. Philippians 2.14 being a, a common verse in, in my life and in, in parenting and in relationships. Paul says, do all things without grumbling or complaining, or the word translates disputing. All things. It'd be a little easier. Sometimes I, I think Paul is so helpful and so kind when he says things like, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. He's saying, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I should do, I don't. I'm like, yes, Paul can relate to us when we're sinning and when we're struggling. And then he says in passages like this, though, do all things. I said, where'd you go? Where's my understanding friend, Paul? Do, do as much as you can. Do some things. Try to do more things. But no, he says, do all things. Paul laying the standard that believers are not to be argumentative, contentious, have a volatile attitude, or be ungrateful. Why? Because those are attitudes that mirror a person who has forgotten the goodness of God. And so he calls the church to be thankful. I heard a coach once say, it's hard to be thankful for what you feel entitled to. Isn't that applicable to the Christian life? Entitlement it will blind you from being thankful. You start walking around in your life and not thinking, yeah, I, I earned that. I worked for that. Yeah, I'm the reason that happened. And stop thinking that way and start thinking, you know, if it wasn't for God, where would I be? I know exactly where I'd be. If it wasn't for grace, I know right where I would be. If it wasn't for His goodness, oh, I know where I'd be. If it wasn't for His love and His mercy, no, He built that. No, He provided that. No, He opened the door for that. It's all God. Well, you know, you did some things too now. You want to take credit and don't, don't be hyper. No, 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 listen. It was all of grace. This is the Spirit-filled life. Most of the time, when we're having a, a Thanksgiving problem, it's an entitlement problem. We ought to be thankful and view everything through the lens of what God has done. And, and maybe you're in a, a, a season of life where you're feeling very opposed right now. Just remember, what both James and Peter say is that God opposes the proud but gives grace to who? The humble. A thankful heart is a humble heart. A humble heart knows exactly where it was heading, and what God has done to turn it around. This breeds thankfulness, an attitude of gratitude, and this is the Spirit-filled life, both the evidence and the means. You say, how, how is it the means? Well, when you start thanking God more, it'll change your attitude. It'll change your perspective. You start thinking about all He's done, it will change you. The Holy Spirit begins to fill you, and you begin to have the renewed mind, and not the carnal mind, the fleshly, entitled, arrogant, proud mind, but the humble, Spirit-filled mind. Philippians 4, 8, and 9 is helpful here. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, good repute, if anything is of excellence and worthy of praise, dwell. Literally means ponder on these things. Any brooders in the room? You like to brood? Brooding. Right? A lot of men, we like to brood. 
Like, like brooding and thinking about it is going to solve it. Sometimes I, I can be that way. And I'll be sitting silently. My wife's like, hey, question for you. I'm like, just wait. I'm trying to figure something out. I'm like thinking. And she's like, you're brooding right now, aren't you? I said, well, I, I'm thinking. I've got a lot on my mind. You know, as men, we brood. We dwell. But it's not on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely. Paul says, you can be a brooder, you can be a dweller, but just dwell on the right things. Think about those things, and it'll change your whole attitude and perspective. Finally, a submissive heart. A submissive heart is both the evidence and the means of being Spirit-filled. He says, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Here's the the secret. You can't be Spirit-filled unless you are submissive. We can't be. Being Spirit-filled is literally being yielded. It is being submissive. So anything other than a submissive heart yielded to God will not breed the Spirit-filled life. This is the attitude of of self-denial, which is like who? Christ, the ultimate and perfect model of laying Himself down. We quench the Spirit when we're not submissive. Why? Because a lack of submission is rebellion against God. I'm often fascinated when I'm reading the Scriptures about how faith pleases God and faith pleases God and faith is blessed by God. And I, What is it about faith that pleases God? What is it about faith that invokes the blessing of God. You know what it is? Faith, the Greek word pistis, means to to trust, to throw yourself wholly and fully upon something or someone. Faith is a total giving up of your way. Faith is a complete letting go. Faith is, I am going to trust you and follow you. I'm not going to put any stock in myself. No wonder it pleases God. It's entirely not our natural pattern. It's to say, I trust you. It's to say, I believe in you. It's to say, you're it. I'm not. It's to say, I can't, but you can. And really, that's the picture of submission. I lay down my way. I give up my ambitions, and I take up yours. I give up my drive for the things of this world, and I take up your command for the things that you call me to do. And, and then where does this uh, submission work itself out? Well, he says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So it's certainly attached to Christ. I fear the Lord. That's the driving mechanism. But he says, submission to one another. Now, it's not submission to one another in anything. It's not submission to one another into sin, but it's in the fear of Christ. So we submit, and we are submissive generally as men and women, as strong as you might be, every single man or woman, no matter how strong you are and how much you don't like submission to certain things, you must melt like hot wax in the presence of God. The believer, the Spirit-filled believer, lays down all arms. You know those people that just have a way? In, in my house, it's mom, right? Mom's just got a way. When mom says it or when mom does it or when mom nurtures a certain way, everybody just melts. Maybe in your house, it's a grandmother or a grandfather or just those people that in life, you just ask for anything. That's how it should be with us and the Lord. You want it? It's yours. You call me to it? Done. You want me to obey? Yes, sir. You want submission? You want me to lay it down? It's down. It's all of my life for all of your glory. MacArthur commentates here. It's helpful to close. The best analogy of moment-by-moment yielding to the Holy Spirit's control is that figure of walking in Ephesians 4.1. Walking involves moving one step at a time, and it can be done no other way. Being filled with the Spirit 
is walking thought by thought, decision by decision, act by act under the Spirit's control. The Spirit-filled life yields to every step. God, friends, resolve to do many good things in the new year. And resolve to do things differently if you've not done some things well. Yes and amen. But above all, resolve to seek after the greatest things. Are you a devoted worshiper because your affection burns for Christ? Are you thankful because He's been so good to you? Are you submissive to His truth? Do you see the importance of saturating your life with the gospel and treasuring both the evidences of being Spirit-filled, but also the means by which we are Spirit-filled? My challenge to you is prioritize local church. Prioritize the Word of God. Prioritize your prayer life and your worship of God. Give your whole self to Him this year, and I guarantee you will look back on 2024 with a great deal of joy knowing you lived the Spirit-filled life. And if the Lord tarries, we get to do it again and again until He returns or calls us home. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us please to be submissive people. We are strong. We are hard-headed. We're, we're rightfully ambitious. You put the drive for good things work and the, the drive to build something and the drive to be purposeful in us. And yet in all of these things, we have a proclivity to do it all for ourselves. I pray for my friends here that as the year turns over and they break ground next week and you continue to grow and nurture and guide this church, that they would exhibit the kind of Spirit-filled life that impacts communities, homes, families, that the lost would be found here continually, that you would bless them. And if by your will that accompanies numerical, help them to be an infectious people in all the right ways, to be influential, that when you get around the people in this church, there's a joy, there's a tangible love, there's a care, there's a service, and there's a witness that you just can't help but get on board with. I pray that as they live the Spirit-filled life, you will bless their work for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.